Well, do keep your Bibles open here at uh, chapter 62 of Isaiah. The subject of the chapter is the marriage that we were made for. Now, I don't know if America has a patron saint, maybe Uncle Sam or somebody like that. Uh, certainly, where, where I come from, there are a number of patron saints. The Irish have got St. Patrick, of course, uh, who was Scottish. Uh, <laughs> the Welsh are doing not too bad. They have St. David, who was, in fact, Welsh. Uh, the Scottish have St. Andrew, who was an apostle, which uh, confirms uh, the, the, the idea that, in fact, from Scotland, heaven is only a local call away. Um, <clears throat> and then the other ones who are on the island, they have St. George, a Syrian individual who is famous for a number of things that he did one of which you can see represented in churches up and down that part of the British Isles, which cannot be mentioned, uh, uh, just because it's very hard for a Scotsman, Scotsman to mention the name of that other place uh, to the south. Uh, anyway, wherever you go in these churches, you'll find in stained glass, you'll see a picture of George on a horse with a spear slaying a, a dragon, and somewhere in the picture there will, be a, there will be a maiden, a young woman, in the background, or to the side, or, or wherever. Every picture is different, but there it is. There's George, there's a dragon, and there's the maiden. And the story of George, though it's only a legend, of course, because it is England we're talking about after all, uh, the story of George and the dragon is all about this. You can summarize it like this. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Now, one of my friends who's an Anglican minister, so I can say this. So, he's English. He's Anglican. So, he's allowed to do this. He, he tweeted this past week this picture of George and the dragon and the young maiden. And he summarized the story of George like this. The story of George is kill the dragon, get the girl. And he went on to say, this is also the Bible story. Think about this for a moment. The Bible story can be summarized like this. Kill the dragon, get the girl. I asked the children in the first service if they knew what I meant by kill the dragon. And one, hands went up immediately. One of them immediately answered correctly. This is the kind of children we have at 10th. He is the devil. And of course, that's right. The devil is the ancient dragon, the serpent. And the Bible is about how you kill the dragon. It's the promise of God there in Genesis. It's about the coming of the Messiah who will slay the dragon in order that he might get the girl. Now, they didn't do so well on getting the girl, by the way. But I hope that you get who the girl is. In fact, when we come to Isaiah 62, we are listening to the voice of the Messiah, the Messiah who a few chapters earlier is all dressed up to go into battle against the powers of darkness and the enemies of God's people, against sin and Satan, all dressed up for battle. He has reappeared in messianic garb at the end of chapter 61. We read this last time. Look at verse 10. This is the Messiah rejoicing in the fact that, that He has 
a work to do, and he has a reward for his work. His reward is people, people who he is going to bring into glory with him, into his kingdom with him. Listen to what he says. Look at verse 10. I will rejoice, greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now, I want you to notice, I want you to notice that in that description, the bridegroom identifies himself with his bride. Here is the Messiah saying that he's coming dressed up like a bridegroom and that he cannot talk about himself and his beauty and glory without talking about the one who stands beside him, his bride. He is dressed in a high priest's beautiful headdress. He's come to deliver salvation and righteousness to his people. And there beside him, bedecked with jewels, precious stones, is his bride. Now, let me put all this in its context. Back in chapter 60, we have a description of the forever future of the people of God. It's all perfection. It's all good. There's nothing bad. It's all wonderful, and it's in the future. It's coming. Chapter 61, we see the one who makes it possible. That's the Messiah, the one who comes clothed in salvation and righteousness. Then in chapter 62, we find him calling his bride to himself, because the bride of the Lamb is the church, described very often in the book of Isaiah as Zion, the city of God, reminding us that the Christian life is not a privatized, individualized life. We come to know God one by one, but we cannot know God without knowing His Christ, and we cannot know His Christ without knowing his church. Go back to that verse I just read you from chapter 61. Do you notice how the Messiah speaking about himself cannot talk about himself without talking about his bride? He cannot describe how he is bedecked with salvation without talking about her and about what flows from her as many people, many people, verse 11, come to enjoy the righteousness and salvation that He has come to give. Throughout this book, the word Zion has become a code word for a people and a place. The people are the people of God, that is His church, and the place is their ultimate destination, their ultimate home, the place where they have their ultimate citizenship, where they truly belong, Zion, the city of our God. In the New Testament, that city is described as Jerusalem that is above. It's described as the heavenly Jerusalem, as Mount Zion, the city of the living God. That is our destination. That is where the believer's identity comes from. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a fundamental thing about the church. 
The church knows that its identity is in Christ and in Zion where Christ is, the city of God that is above. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous physician, and at the top of the tree in terms of his career when he left it all, to go to an obscure part of Wales, I mean, going to Wales is obscure enough, but he went to an obscure part of Wales, which makes it even worse, and the Welsh will get me afterwards because they're very defensive of themselves. But in that church, his first verse that he preached on was intended to put all people were talking, there was newspaper articles about him leaving medicine and going into the ministry and so on, and what a great come down this was, and so forth and so on. His first verse that he preached on was from the King James Version, here we have no continuing city. Here we have no abiding city, no permanent city. And he was saying, as he said throughout his ministry, He reminded men and women that as the people of God, we are very conscious that outside of the New Jerusalem, outside of Zion, the city of God, outside of the church of God, everything else is going to dissolve and pass away. Everything else is doomed to disaster, failure, deconstruction, and decay. The only thing that remains is the Word of God and the church of God, founded by God. And to be reminded that here we have no continuing city is so freeing for the child of God, delivering us as it does from our preoccupation with the now and the here and with things rather than with the things of eternity and the things of God. Now, of course, that's not the way we see the church just now. We find the church of Jesus Christ often fragmented. We find the church of God often characterized by a series of contradictions. We find it divided. We find it languishing often. You look at the church in America, and what do we find? We find the church imitating the world. We find the church full of celebrities far more interested in building their empire and building their, their bank account than they are really in doing the work of the kingdom of God. We look at ourselves and our church, and we find ourselves shot through, as we often are, with internal inconsistencies. We find false teachers dominating the scene, selling their wares, peddling their errors to men and women all over the church of Jesus Christ. The church is in a sorry state. And often we're tempted, aren't we, to to give up on the church and to turn in to our own private faith. So many people have said to me, I have my faith. The church, well, I'm not really interested in church, but I have Jesus, and I have my own personal faith. And there are those who are persuaded that Christianity can be an individualized, privatized devotion to personal Bible study and prayer and so on, with the occasional hopping to special events and so forth. This chapter is a good reminder to us that God is doing something far more than simply getting the message out and getting the soul saved. He is building Zion. Jesus said, I will build my church. 
And I want you to hear the voice of the Messiah here in chapter 62. I want you to hear, first of all, the passion, the passion of the Messiah, the passion of the Lord for Zion in verses 1 to 5. For Zion's sake, he says, I will not keep silent. Here is the Messiah speaking. He is teaching us here. He is teaching us one major lesson as we listen to His voice at the beginning of this verse, that if you love the Lord, you will love what the Lord loves, and the Lord loves His church. He loves His church. And if you want to serve the Lord, you will want to serve His church. That you cannot reach the world by going around the church or creating alternatives to the church. God has only one plan for the salvation of the world, and it is through the church. Those who would have God as their father must have the church as their mother. This is the girl that the Lord is passionate for. For Zion's sake, he says, I will not keep silent. Here is the Lord Himself. His voice lies behind the voice of every Christian preacher, every gospel declarer, because here is the voice of the Lord saying, I'm not going to stop speaking, not going to stop being passionate about my church until… until what? Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. He is looking beyond today. He is looking beyond the end of history. He is looking to that moment when He descends from heaven with a great cry of command and the trumpet of God, and every eye sees Him, and they see with Him His bride, His church, complete, perfect, a perfect bride without spot or stain or wrinkle or any such thing. That's what he's speaking about here. And here is the Lord Messiah, and he's saying he will not stop speaking himself. He will not stop being passionate through his preachers for the building up of his church until that day when his church is perfected, until his work is consummated, and all his people are together in one place with him in his train as he descends to earth to reign. We are listening to the Lord here. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. I will not be quiet until… Now, you don't see that today. You look at the church today, and we are messy. We are all kinds of messy. We look around at ourselves, and and people in this room are of various ages and stages, and some of us will be dead in five years, ten years, twenty years. All of us will be dead in a, you know, in a hundred years, and that's the way it's going to be because we are dying people, and we're sinful people. We each have our own issues, and our own issues rub up against other people's issues, and and we create problems with one another because we are sinners. We are a society of sinners, justified but still sinful. That's the reality. The Apostle John is reflecting on what Jesus says here, I think, and 
and the reality that I've just described when he writes in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, right now, however we look, however we appear, whatever we're like. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we've received Him, we are God's children now. But he goes on to say this, what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, people cannot see when they look at us what we are going to be when Jesus comes. He goes on to say this, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Brothers and sisters, this is the end game of the church of Jesus Christ. This is what we are working for, preaching for, serving for, praying for, giving for. It is that one day, this church, the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, will be perfected on that day of their marriage, the wedding day, the wedding we were made for. That is the great goal. On that day, read on with me, the nations… Verse 2, shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. On that day there will be no doubt. There will be no doubt on that day. Not simply that we have a right standing with God, but on that day when we see Him, we will be like Him. Therefore, we will be that day as righteous as Jesus is now. On that day, we will not be able to sin ever. On that day, failure will be impossible. On that day, we will have resurrection bodies, which Paul says will be like Jesus' own glorious body. We will share somehow in the glory of God Himself. On that day, that is our destiny. On that day, people will see your glory. Isn't that amazing? On that day, you shall be a crown. You will have receive a new name, and the mouth of the Lord will give it to you. We'll find out what that is later. Verse 3, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. We don't feel like that today. We feel that we're disheveled. We feel we're wrinkled. We feel we're messed up. We feel uh, imperfect. But on that day, all the imperfections dealt with, all the wrinkles ironed out, all the failures put to one side, all the sin forgiven, all the proclivity to sin, all all the tendency to sin eradicated on that day. You will be a crown of beauty, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And notice he goes on. On that day, what people say about you now will not be true. They say you are forsaken or desolate. Now, now how do we… what is is he referring to here? At one level, we think of the state of the church of Isaiah's day just… Some years after his death, the Babylonians would come and they would demolish Jerusalem. They would devastate the temple and they would burn the land surrounding and it would be a scorched earth. That's one form of desolation and forsakenness. 
But as we live in part of the church of Jesus Christ today, in a sense, this has been the story of the church right throughout our history. The, the church is often regarded by the world as if we've been forsaken by our God and are left desolate without Him. Where is your God? Where is this God you believe in? We've got all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't believe in the God you believe in. We've all kinds of arguments against the things you believe. We don't believe that this God created the world. We've got another alternative explanation of how the world came into being. And there are so many other religions in the world. Why should we believe that your religion is the right one? Why should we believe in Jesus? The Muslims say he didn't really die, therefore he never rose from the dead. Should we believe them or should we believe you? The Jehovah's Witnesses say that he's only a man that God took up and deified, that he's not the Son of God eternally the way you, you teach. Do we believe them or do we believe you? And in any case, look at you. How much power do you have? What wealth do you have? What influence do you have in the world? Do you see how the world is constantly mocking us? Forsaken. Where is your God? Why doesn't your God intervene? You get sick. You die. Where is your God? Where are the promises of your God? The world is constantly hurling at us its, its accusations. You've been forsaken by your God. You're desolate. You have nothing. Here God reminds us, in that day when Christ returns, you will be no longer termed forsaken. You will, your land will no longer be termed desolate. Nobody will say that any longer, not on that day. On that day, you will be called, here's a Hebrew word, translated, my delight is in her. On that day, your land will be called married. No longer are people saying on that day, who is this guy that you're in love with? Who is this invisible gent that you keep talking about? We don't believe you've got a boyfriend. We don't believe you've got a man out there you care for, who cares for you the way you say he does. Where's the evidence? Where is the evidence? On that day, they will see your bridegroom on that day. They will see your beloved on that day. You will, your eyes, their eyes, will behold the King who is your Prince who loves you. Isn't this amazing? Listen. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you see the excitement? Isn't that an amazing picture? He puts his delight, he finds delight in his church. He rejoices over his church. On that day, it will be demonstrated to a watching universe that Christ is our heavenly bridegroom, that his church is his bride, and he's looking forward to the day when he can show his church off his bride, off his girl, off to the world and say, she is mine. That's Christ's purpose. My delight is in her. And so whenever you're tempted to give up on the church, whenever you're tempted to despair of yourself, 
you are to let your mind wander to this glorious thought of who you are and where you're headed to the marriage we were made for, the bride of Christ, with Christ our heavenly bridegroom. Well, this is the destiny of the people of God. This is where we're going. This is the place, the direction that God is taking us in. Well, in verses 5 to 9, what is the Lord's strategy? We've seen the Lord's delight in Zion. What is the Lord's strategy for Zion in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, of course, He is speaking. Uh, That's I think the point of verse 1, he, he is not silent. He will not be silent throughout this period. He'll keep on going on about what's coming. He wants to talk about, he wants to talk about the wedding that's coming and, and the one he will marry, his church, his bride. He wants to talk about that all the time right now. What can we do right now? What we, what's our place right now? Here we are. And the bridegroom that as will be to be is not here. He's not visible to us. What what are we to do right now? Well, we're to do what a girl would do. Boys, you have to learn how to be a girl for this moment. This is a very humbling thing for men to realize that the church is always feminine in the Bible. Very humbling and I think intentionally so. So, get get over it and get with the program here. What what, what do we do? Well, we think about Him. We think about about our bridegroom who is coming. On the walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen, that is guardians. And their business is to pray all the day, all the night. They shall never be silent. Now, there's a discussion among the commentators, as there always is. Are these guardians heavenly beings, or are these guardians earthly people? And I have read all the back and forth, and you don't really want all of that stuff. So, what I'm going to do is what any self-respecting preacher would do and say, it's probably both. And (laughs) the reason I say that is because in the book of Revelation, of course, In the book of Revelation, which is absolutely crucial for us in understanding a lot of the Old Testament, there we we are taken into the heavenly throne room, and we hear that the prayers of God's people are always, always coming up before God like perfume. They come, God's, you know, is aware of them, His senses. We're using human language of God, of course, here. It's accommodated to our level. He is always aware of the prayers of His people. But that's not all. In that, heavenly, in that heavenly courtroom, in that heavenly place, there are these angels, these angelic beings, and what they're doing is they're always taking those prayers, and which God is aware of, of course, and hearing and answering, but they're taking those things and they're kind of putting it in a note on His desk, just in case He forgets. You know, so, every day they're making sure that those prayers are there. Not, not only is He hearing them all the time, but they're making sure that he's here. So it's a kind of double whammy. It's a kind of double to be sure, to be sure, as the Irish would say. And what are these prayers? Look at the text goes on here. You will put the Lord in remembrance. 
You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Give Him, that is, give the Lord no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes the praise in the earth. What's that telling you about this prayer? This is not the prayer, legitimate, though those prayers are. This is not the prayer that we pray when we're praying for our sore toes or our operation or our children or our whatever, election. We should be praying for all of those things, of course. There's another kind of prayer that we don't do so much. We don't do this so well. This is prayer, big prayer, for the big business of the kingdom. This is the kind of prayer Jesus taught us to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer, when He said we are to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray for the coming of the kingdom. And what are we to do when we pray for the coming of the kingdom, when we pray for the work of the gospel, when we pray for the church on earth? What are we to do? We are to bring before God His own promises. We are to put Him in remembrance. We're constantly to take Him at His word, and we are to bring it to Him and say, but Lord, you said, but Lord, you said and get his attention. My children learned to do this. They would always, that's what they would say. If they wanted something, they would say, but dad, you said. Now, many times I could not remember having having said what they said I'd said, but I was afraid maybe I had said what they said I'd said, and I didn't want to not do what I'd said I'd said, or maybe had not said that I'd said, that they said I'd said, if I did, or whatever. I don't know if that made any sense. It wasn't meant to. But here's the thing. When you come to God, you know perfectly well that God keeps His Word. And what we're to do is we are to pray His Word. We're to put Him in remembrance. We're not to take any rest. We're to give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. That is, until He finishes the work He said He will do. We're to be bold. You notice how bold we're to be there? We're to give Him no rest. Here is the Lord telling us how we are to approach the Lord. Give me no rest. Keep bringing up my promises. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was uh, 18 when he took over the new Park Street Church pulpit in London, in the south, south of the river. And uh, in the first few years of his ministry there, starting almost immediately when he started preaching there, there was a a revival of religion. It was 1859, and revivals were happening spontaneously right throughout the, the Europe and North America, the Spirit of God falling in various places, and, and many, many hundreds of thousands of people were becoming Christians. And there in London, they did under Spurgeon's ministry. And he recalled this. Later in life, he recalled going to the prayer meetings, and he reminded his people of how they had prayed in those days when God was adding to the church those who were being saved. And he said, remember how it was in those prayer meetings. It sounded as if you were trying to climb the battlements of heaven, that with battering rams you were trying to break down the gates of the new Jerusalem, as if with with arrows, you were firing the promises of God back to God in order to claim the promises of God for His work amongst us in those days. 
Brothers and sisters, when do we pray like that? When do we pray for the big work of the kingdom with passion and with boldness and with constancy like that? Do we believe God or not? And do we turn what we believe about God into passionate, believing prayer to God for the kingdom of God on earth? That's the strategy. And do you notice that God not only tells us what the strategy is, but gives us a firm and good reason for it, for giving us this? The Lord has sworn by His right hand, that is, by His personal action. He has sworn by His mighty arm, that is, by His personal power. And in the book of Isaiah, the arm of the Lord is invariably the Messiah, who is the personal action and personal power, of course, of God that is revealed. So, who, what are we to do? We are, he is saying that he has sworn, he has sworn by the Messiah, he has sworn by the promises regarding his Messiah, so that you can be sure that what he has said he will bring to pass. The Apostle Paul, I think, reflects on this in First Corinthians chapter, sorry, in Second Corinthians chapter one, when he says this: "For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, was not yes and no, indecisive, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes." in Christ. By myself I have sworn, by His right hand and by His mighty arm He has sworn. God has sworn in Christ. Look at at verse uh, 8 and into 9, that in that New Jerusalem, in that holy city of Zion, there will be no reversal to the way it was before. I will not again give you a grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. Those who garner it shall eat it. Those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. God is saying, there will be no, in that new Jerusalem, there will be no reversion to the disobedience of this period. No reversion to the disobedience of the people in the desert, the wilderness, the Israelites. No reversion to the way it is now at all, ever, for eternity. You will be saved to sin no more. The church will be saved to sin no more. Jesus has died in order that His bride might be a pure and perfect bride, free from sin in the new heaven and new earth. God's strategy then is that we should pray based on God's great promise And then lastly, verses 10 to 12, the Lord's mission for Zion. In the meantime, God has prepared a a welcoming city, and we are on our way there. So, verse 10 describes a pilgrim people. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highways, clear out of stones, lift up a signal over the people, God says. Now we are meant to join them. We are meant to go on the journey through the gates, along the highway that's been prepared. 
We've read about that earlier in this book. And make our way as pilgrims towards the heavenly city of Zion. That's what the Christian life is. It is a journey home to Zion. We are people on a pilgrimage. We are moving forward. Home to Zion, we are bound, happy in the love of Jesus. We are on our way to that eternal city, that celestial city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. It's secure. It's firm. It is not like everything else around us that is going to dissolve like dust. It will remain. When everything else is shaken, it will stand firm. When all of this universe is reshaped, that city of God remaineth. And as we make our journey, do you notice, we are to lift up the signal over the peoples. This signal is none other than the Messiah Himself in Isaiah's book. Jesus alludes to it when He says, I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. As we go on the journey, we invite others to join us on the journey. We hold up the signal. We hold up to you this morning. You may not be a Christian person. We invite you to join us on the journey. Every local church, every living assembly of God's people today is an entry point into the highway that goes to Zion. Come join us. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Join us on the journey home to Zion. Well, the word to the church is, behold, your salvation comes. His reward is with Him, His recompense before Him. And on that day, the new name, denoting a change, denoting a wonderful transformation, will be given to God's people. On that day, they shall be called. Here's the name that was promised earlier. The holy people. Here it's holiness in bud, there in flower. Here, holiness in promise. There, holiness in reality. The holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, those who have been purchased by the precious blood of the Savior, those who have been ransomed for God on the basis of their Savior shedding His precious blood, the church of God bought with His precious blood. They're ransomed. And while you're sitting here thinking this morning, he's a church, I just feel a little bit like somebody who's been left on the shelf. No, no. The sought out. You will be called sought out. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood he bought her. And for her life he died. If you're a believer this morning, it's because the Lord looked for you, not because you looked for Him. He sought you out. And here finally is this, a city not forsaken. 
That sounds negative, but it says a positive thing. It means not forsaken. That means you're home at last. You have acceptance, redemption, holiness. A home at last. A permanent home from which you will never fall from grace. Now, the exhortation, therefore, at the end here is that we should aim at getting our eyes away from the now and the here and things, lifting our eyes to Him, our heavenly Bridegroom. Let's have Him on the horizon of our thought, our Lord Jesus Christ, in all His spectacular glory, great and enormous power. Let's have Him in our minds. We should have our minds set on things unseen. What was it John said? We do not see Him now, but we shall see Him. We walk by faith right now, not by sight, but one day we will see Him. We've been getting these love letters from Jesus for a long time. We've been studying these love letters from Jesus since we first became Christians. We know a lot about Him, but we haven't seen Him. But on the day that He appears, we will instantly recognize Him. And instantly we shall be like Him. And instantly we will be with Him. And nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are looking, brothers and sisters, for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So the Messiah killed the dragon, and he'll end up with the girl. Hallelujah. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray that You would write it on our hearts as we head together on this journey to Jerusalem that is above, the heavenly Jerusalem, Zion, the city of our God, our true home and our true destiny. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.